Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. As we approach the lesson, one more thing. I put out with the ushers today... Uh, this is a study guide about the Sethite interpretation of what I'm going to talk about today. I'm not going to spend time on the Sethite interpretation because it just dragged things out too long. So what I did is I put it all in a uh, form that w- you could read on your own and understand that position and the problems that are entailed in that because the position I'm going to take today is called the angelic interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. But I, I gave this to you as a kind of a polemic you can take that home, study you on your own as you, if you want to explore the subject a bit further. And so without further ado, we approach a subject that's uh, not treaded on very often. I have to introduce the subject matter because most of the Christians that have, have grown up in church have never heard about the subject. They actually have never been taught it. And in fact, the churches they go to or the pastors they had, good people, but unfortunately, because they didn't want to deal with this passage, just skip this passage over or didn't deal with it adequately or, or properly. And so um, a lot of Christians, this is new stuff to them. It, it shouldn't be, but it is. I will say this, the early church up until the 5th century all knew this. The Jews knew this, and it was the common teaching for the Jews and Christians all the way up to the 5th century. The Jews still hold to this. And uh, there's an element of the church that continues to hold it and hold the line to it as the church goes liberal, as the church goes into uh, allegorizing scripture, the Sethite view becomes more appealing to them. And I'll tell you why. It's the same reason why Augustine and the early church fathers in the fifth century decided to go to the Sethite view. The Sethite view is more palatable to unbelievers. The Sethite view is more palatable for those who are anti-supernatural. The Sethite view is more palatable to those who don't want to think it's really that bad. And what I'm going to expose you to is how really bad it is. It's not to be a downer on anything, but one of the things you have to understand is the spiritual warfare that you and I are in. You and I hear about it, people talk about it, and people give their Christianese about it, and they they quote it and stuff like that. Well, I'm going to put on the full armor of God. That's true, but do they know what they're fighting? Do they understand the enemy? And a lot of them don't. When you see a text like this and you'll see what happens, you will start realizing it's worse than you think and that these beings are still active and doing what they need to do. I only give you this so you'll understand what you're facing. We're seeing high levels of demonic activity in the world like we've never seen before. We're seeing Christians demonized, and I'll explain what that means. We're seeing Christians influenced by demons. We're seeing Christians... Uh, oppressed or suppressed by the demonic realm like we've never seen before. I have seen things in the last eight years of our ministry than I've ever seen prior to it. I've never seen the kind of demonic activity that I've seen. It's unbelievable. And what it tells me that things are ramping up in these last days, and we should expect that. So that being the case, I think what we need to do is when we approach this text, I don't want you to approach it with a presuppositional mindset to it. I want you to just read the text with me and unfold it and let the text speak for what it says. Because here's the deal. What the text is going to imply once you read it and expound it and you see what it's saying, 
you're not going to have too many other options available to you because the text and the context in which it's happening will confine you to conclude or deduce really one outcome of this. Let the text speak for itself and then deal with it. If the implications are what the text is saying, then you and I are facing something greater than we really thought. So that being the case, let me set the setting for this. This is Genesis chapter 6, and this is when the Banacha Elohims do something and violate something very off-limits. They violate the boundaries of what they're called to do. Now, these Banacha Elohims are fallen angels, but fallen angels or good angels are still called sons of God. They're sons of God because they're called a direct, they're a direct creation of God. Adam is called a direct son of God. And obviously the Messiah is called the unique son of God. He's the one and only son of God. He's unique in that sense. Uh, in the Old Testament, when you see Banacha Elohim, it only refers to either Adam or the angels. Once you move into the New Testament, the sons of God in the Greek will refer to believers as well as we are called a new creation in the Messiah. But that only comes after the new covenant. So in the new covenant, it's proper to say that you and I are children, are sons and daughters of God in the sense that we have a new nature and we're a new creation. But that's not true in the Old Testament. That term, sons of God, was only limited to either Adam or fallen or real uh, uh, non-fallen angels. So we have to have that setting as we, in, we, we look at the text. In chapter 5, we've seen these lines of humanity coming out from, obviously, uh, Adam's and Eve's children. They're populating now. One line was highlighted, the line of Seth, which what Moses is trying to do is show you the seed line of the Messiah, where, where the seed line of Messiah is going through. Moses is not trying to contrast one line against another. He is highlighting Cain, but he is showing you where Cain settled, what's happening with his uh, progenitors, and what they're doing. They're getting away from God. And so there is a seed line, there is a remnant of believers, and there's also the mass of humanity. So then what this does, in chapter 6, it talks about what's happening to all of humanity at this point in time. And, and so chapter 5 leads right into this and is a segue into chapter 6 because chapter 6 will then go and explain because of this happening, the flood happened. So the flood is tied directly to what you're going to study today. I'm going to break up the study in two parts. We'll de today we'll deal with two verses and then next week we'll deal with the other two because you have to understand this. If you don't get this theme, the angelic conflict, you will miss most of what's happening uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, you will miss why Jesus did certain things in the Gospels. You will miss why Paul says certain things in his letters. And eventually, in the book of Revelation, some of the things you read won't make sense unless you know Genesis 6. So Genesis 6 is a foundational understanding, just like Genesis chapter 3 is or Genesis chapter 1. You have to have this as a basis of understanding as you approach your Christianity. So it's at that point, guys, this is pretty important for un to understand, okay? So with that being said, let's then start into the text of Genesis chapter 6, 
and we're going to deal with what's called the sin of the watchers. The sin of the watchers, this is Genesis 1, uh, 6, 1 through 2, and um, we're going to explore it now in verse 1. Now it says in verse 1, now it came to pass, the idea is that it's linking to Genesis 5 with the genealogies that you saw there, that when men, and it should be in, in your Hebrew, ha-adam, uh, is the Hebrew for men or humanity, uh, or mankind, is a, it's a blanket general term in the Hebrew, began to multiply on the face of the earth, just as you saw in Genesis chapter 5. And the idea, understand, it's a, there's no distinction. It's just that people are populating. Don't, don't try to keep the distinctions of the Cain line and the Seth line. Don't do that. It's, it's trained in context of saying, as humanity is multiplying, this thing occurs. And it's highlighting, and daughters were born to them. Genesis 5 highlights the sons. Now Genesis 6 will highlight daughters of humanity. They had females, obviously. And so, um, again, it's not limiting to signs, uh, to, to, sorry, to different uh, lines. It's saying all of humanity is doing this, and it's highlighting the females involved in this. Verse 2, that the sons of God, the bene ha Elohim, which is a tactical term for angels or fallen angels, either one. We understand from the context that these are fallen angels, okay? And again, there's plenty of references, and I think on the screen I put there all the uh, references. you got Job 1, 2, 38, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 29, Psalm 89, Psalm 82, all references to the Banacha Elohim, which refers to sons of God. Okay, let me explain a, a few things. The Banacha Elohim, the sons of God, are also called watchers. The term watchers comes from Daniel chapter 4. It's mentioned several times in Daniel chapter 4. I think three times if I recall. Daniel calls angels watchers. These specific Banacha Elohims are watchers. What does that mean? Well, to understand that there are ranks and orders of angels, there are also ranks and orders of fallen angels. Satan even has his, his fallen angels in ranks and orders, as Paul mentions, of powers, principalities, and so forth. That being the case, when an angel is called a watcher, it means that they're a very high-ranking angel, and the term watcher refers to their primary assignment. Some angels are messengers, delivering messages. Some are guardians. Some fight, and some are watchers. The watchers then watch, guess who? Humanity. They're the witnesses for watching humanity. Just as you note, when we study the book of Revelation, each church is assigned a watcher or an angel, and that angel watches that particular church. Why? That angel will one day be a witness to that church at the, the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, because the Bible requires two or three witnesses, so angels are used as witnesses. These particular watchers watch humanity, and they're given over regions or assignments over different areas. You'll see this in Daniel chapter 10, where certain angels, like uh, uh, like uh, Gabriel, was fighting the prince of Persia, a fallen angel who was given the assignment over Persia, and then he go and Michael came in to help him, and then Michael says, "I have to go and continue to fight the prince of Greece." So there are territorial watchers 
who watch that specific area. And those watchers sometimes are fallen angels. Not that they're watching for God anymore, but they are watching, and they watch humanity. This might be very disturbing to you, but I have to tell you this. You are being watched more than God. You know God sees everything you do, right? You know that. You also have watchers watching you. There are good angels watching you, just like good angels watch this church. There's been, in this, uh, according to Revelation, each church has an angel assigned to them, a watcher, and uh, an angel watches Rock Harbor. You will see and meet that watcher at the Bema seat as he witnesses for what we did as a church group for the Messiah. He will witness for us or against us, but he's a witness. There are also fallen angels that are watching you and I as well. They see what happens behind closed doors. They know what our weak points are, and they know how to attack us, spiritually speaking. You have to understand that because of the world you and I live in, there's an invisible world that has access to watch everything you and I do. Hence the term watcher. They're watching. What do you think the demonic or the fallen angel realm is watching for, for you and I? They're watching for where the chinks in the armor are at. They're watching for where they can attack you at. Now, this might make you feel uncomfortable, but unfortunately, you have to know this. This is because of the spiritual battle you're in, why Paul will admonish us to wear spiritual armor and to understand the fight that you and I are in. Here's the deal. Whether you like it or not, you're in it. You are in the fight. and They don't care if you think you're not. You can bury your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. That's what they want you to do. At that point, they will take full advantage of that. Okay, that being the case, that's where the term watcher comes from. It's used by Daniel. It's also used in extra-biblical literature as well, like the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not canonical, but it explains a lot more of what happened with the watchers. Now, this being the case, um, these watchers uh, are noted by other sources and other biblical, uh, sorry, non-biblical literature, and even early Mesopotamian literature, and even by the early church literature. I just want to show you a list that we're not alone on this. This was the early thought about them, and early uh, thinking, um, that translates sons of God as referring to angels. The Septuagint does this. Let's go rapidly through this. Josephus does this. The Book of Enoch does this. The Dead Sea Scrolls do this. The Targum Pseudo-Jonathan do does this. The seven books of the Pseudepigrapha, Enoch, Jubilees, Enoch, Second uh, Baruch, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, and so forth. That's extra-biblical literature. That's stuff that you would study to learn the genre, the culture, the history. These are not inspired, but n nonetheless, it's what a first-century Jew knew, if you want to understand that. Philo mentions this as well. The Midrashim, which is the Jewish uh, commentary on the on the the Bible, the Old Testament. Canaanite and Ugaritic texts also mention this early church up until the 5th century. And unfortunately, like I told you, the early church all believed this until Augustine came and some of the other church fathers who saw, saw that this was not palatable to unbelievers, so they changed it to the Sethite view. That's how it happened, and that's the reason why it changed to this Sethite view. The Sethite view just simply says, oh, these are just human beings getting together and producing Nephilim. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work. But Augustine 
is problematic in church history. He is a major problem. And he, 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 the Sethite view stuck. He also introduced what we know as Calvinism. It was Augustine that was behind that, not Calvin. It was Augustine. Calvin just picked up the argument of Augustine and continued on. And the allegorization or spiritualization of the text came from Augustine as well. And it proliferated throughout church history, even till today. So the point about this is we're going back to what does the text say? And what is even, what does the Jews believe? What does the early church believed about this? So that being the case, let's talk about a little bit more about the watchers. Understanding the Jewish background in this, the watchers were part of also God's counsel. You will see texts in the Bible that it seems like God's, God's talking to more than just the Trinity, that he has a divine counsel and he will call them God's little G. Now, to understand the, the, the Hebrew and the culture behind this, we call angels or these spirit creatures that God created angels, but they didn't call them angels. They called them Elohims, gods, little g, right? And, and so don't get confused about that sometimes if, if the Hebrew uses the word Elohim. It sometimes refers to the God of the Most High, but all spirit creatures are called Elohims, little g. And so these watchers were considered on uh, the Most High's council. And they were up there before they fell. So they were, they were high, high-ranking uh, angels. Now, let me explain this. I'm now about to jump off into tradition, Okay. I'm going into Jewish tradition to give us a little bit more background about these watchers. According to Enoch, and Enoch's not a canonical book, but I want you to understand the genre of the first century Jew. What did the first century Jew think, read, and understand? Well, the first century Jew was saturated by the book of Enoch. If you've ever read the book of Enoch, you'll have more information about what the watchers did. Again, not scripture, not Holy Spirit inspired, but more of a historical understanding of what passed through the Jewish mindset through oral law. As you know, the Jews transmitted orally their traditions. Well, Enoch picks up these traditions of what was the thought. By the way, the biblical writers will use Enoch to incorporate the same terminology and even quote from the book of Enoch some parts of it. Jude will quote from Enoch. Okay, what does extra biblical information say about these watchers? These watchers fell, obviously, with Lucifer or uh, Satan. But through the course of humanity, as humanity was populating, one head angel fallen angel, we would know as Satan, convinced 200, and they give, Enoch gives the number 200, of these fallen angels, these high-ranking angels, to make a deal among themselves at Mount Hermon, which is a very evil place, that whole area of Mount Hermon, the Bashan area, where the tribe of Dan was, is a very evil place. They descended upon Mount Hermon and swore an oath to start taking human women and, and, and procreating with them and creating hybrids. And we'll talk about those hybrids next week. We call them Nephilim. So these 200 angels came under the direction of Satan 
swore an oath because it was so bad what they did. This particular sin is so bad, they left their proper domain. The fallen angel's domain is space. We would consider outer space. That's the domain of them. They have access back and forth from earth to heaven. But they decided to leave that space, come to earth, and then, according to that, even Genesis 6 and Enoch and Mesopotamian literature decided to then procreate and have hybrids. Now, I'll hold off in telling you the reasons for it till the end, but I just want you to understand the mechanics of where it went. And so it's given a little bit more extra information. Whether it's true or not, I'm not sure, but I'm just adding that in. By the way, the early Mesopotamian literature, if you read Mesopotamia theology, which was the early Sumers, they all had the same story. They call them the Apkalu. Okay, the Bible calls them watchers, the Banaha Elohim, but the Mesopotamian literature called them Apkula or Apkalu. Well, anyway, the, the Mesopotamian had the same story. They mated with humans and created hybrids. Now, I want you to take a step back, and I want you to think about this. You remember in high school, or maybe even in elementary school, that you learned about Greek mythology or even Roman mythology. Do you remember taking those classes, and you learned about Hercules, and you learned about Atlas and Zeus and Apollo, and you learned about centaurs and minotaurs and Medusa? Remember all that. Every ancient culture, even today, has stories like that. They have stories where the gods came down, mated with humans, and created these creatures, hybrids, these half half bull, half human, half fish, half human, like mermaids or mermen, or, or all kinds of weird creations. We'll show you this next week, but even the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Hawaiians, the Polynesians, Chinese, all over the planet, all ancient cultures have a similar story where these, these demigods came down, had sex, and created monsters, giants. Every ancient folklore has giant stories. Why? Why do they have this? Why does every ancient culture have a flood story? Giants? demigods, sacrifice, including blood, and a flood story. Every ancient culture has these marks, because I can tell you why. It's deriving from the Genesis narrative. Now, obviously, they're corrupted, obviously. But think about this. When you were in high school and your teacher was teaching you about Zeus and Apollo, there was an element of truth behind it that your teacher probably didn't know. And it stemmed to this issue right here. So when you your teenagers say, I don't want to study this, this is boring, say, wait a second. The truth is here in Genesis 6, it something radically happened prior to the flood. Now, that being the case, here's let's go back to the text. They saw, and I note, note that it's underlined, the daughters of men, these are human females that they were beautiful, underline beautiful, and they took, underline that. You know what Moses is hiding, highlighting? Saw, beautiful, or good, and took. It's the same pattern as Eve. Saw that the tree was good, and she took it. 
Same pattern. So Moses is saying, it's the same thing. They saw something that was off limits, and they went ahead and crossed the boundary and took it just like Eve did. Now, this idea of took, well, let me back up a little bit. Let me back up to beautiful. The fact that to the Banacha Elohim, that human females were beautiful and they're attracted to them, needs to be explained. Because a lot of ha- people have a misunderstanding about angels, unfortunately. And I think it came due to the Renaissance. If you think an angel or a cherub is a fat little baby with wings on its back, and it's on the Hallmark card uh, that you go buy in the store, you're wrong. That came out of mediev- medieval Christian architecture and, and, and sculpting. But that's not true. In fact, a lot of people think a- angels are sexless. They are not. All throughout the Bible, whether it's using the Hebrew or the Greek or it's a direct reference to their name, all angels are male in orientation. All of them. So it tells you that if it is these 200, I don't know if that's the exact number, but there was a group of them, looked on female, human females, and saw attractiveness in them and wanted them. Wanted them to procreate, obviously. But I want you to notice that they are attracted to females because they're all male. Hold on to that thought because I have to make the application at the end and Paul will make the application for us about this female attractiveness of angels. It has to do with the hair. I'll come back to it. They took them. Now the Hebrew indicates this is not a rape. They didn't swoop down and raped them. It means that they somehow did a marriage deal and it was quite, the women were quite willing to accept the marriage proposal. Now, let me bring in some cultural background of, of the Hebrew mindset and what was going on. When you're going back this far in biblical history, you're dealing with a patriarchal system, which means that the dad is in charge of everything that's going on in that family. So if his daughter was going to get married, he he arranges the marriage. And that's how it went. And and it went on for for centuries after that, thousands of years. It was a patriarchy. And even today, in some Jewish areas, um, they'll have a matchmaker that will arrange marriages between people. I sometimes think that's not a bad idea because I think parents know better who their kids probably should marry. But nonetheless, I'm not going to go on that rabbit trail. Because they'll always come, it's just love, I love him so much, he, he's just, he's a soulmate. And it's like the parents saying, he's a deadbeat, don't marry him. But um, nonetheless, let's move on. The father of the home would make a decision of whether that daughter would be married. And, and she really had a, very little control on that. Later on, they had the ability to say yes or no, but early on, there's the dad making all the decisions. Patriarchy. The Hebrew says this was not a violent rape or a violent snatching away. It indicates that this is pretty civil about how they did it. Well, according to Enochian literature and outside extra-biblical literature, again, again, this is not inspired, but it might give a clue to this passage. It seemed that it was good to these fathers to cut deals with the Banaha Elohim, 
and to marry their daughters to the Benaha Elohim for an advantage. And the advantage, according to Enoch, was that these Benaha Elohim traded secret information to these fathers that would give them a worldly advantage over a lot of people. What do you mean? Well, according to Enoch, and I'm not going to go through all of this, these angels were cutting deals to tell these dads how to make weapons, how to do metallurgy, alchemy, how to uh, do astrology, astronomy, um, and, and how to honestly do a lot of occultic practices, what we call witchcraft, Satanism, whatever, tapping into the occult realm. The word occult means to reveal secret information. There is information that God does not want humans to have. See, the angels saw creation. They know how things work. And I've even heard reports of highly demonic uh, individuals like in Mexico that are possessed that actually can do fabulous surgeries in Mexico with very little anesthesia, and the person comes out unbelievably uh, whole. And what they find out is that the, the woman doctor who was doing the surgery is demon-possessed. The demon takes over and, and does amazing work on, on people getting them healed. And there's very little uh, blood. There's very little incisions. But these people are miraculously healed through a demonically possessed doctor. And again, it just, they, they, they gave medical information to these individuals. Now, understand at this point in time, if you gave a human being information that no one else had, you could see what worldly advantage would happen at that point. That person would become rich and very powerful and become leaders in that community and perhaps kings. So the information was being traded to them if that person would give their daughter to the Banacha Elohim. And apparently, they were willing to trade their daughters to these creatures. Let me take a step back. It is very possible, and it is, it is true, that angels can manifest physically in our world. They do all the time. This is why the book of Hebrews says, be very hospitable. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, be very hospitable because you may not understand that you might be entertaining an angel. Now, why would he say that? Why would he even give that warning? Because it's possible that some people that look like humans are not, but are angels and they're to minister to you, but you wouldn't know. Now, missionaries talk a lot about this. Person appears, helps them, and all of a sudden they're gone. I think even people have written books on angelic encounters, and the angelic encounters are always young men that appear out of nowhere and then disappear. And there's a lot of accounts in that. So angels and even fallen angels can manifest physically in this world. Uh, remember the two angels that appeared with uh, the Lord with Abraham? They manifested. They ate. There was, there was angels that shoved people away. They, had, they could have physical movement. And we know this even from the demonic realm that they can do things in the physical world, even though people don't see them. That's why things move in people's homes smells, sounds, all kinds of weird stuff. We call them, you know, in the modern world, they call them hauntings. If not, it's demonization. But they can do things and move things in the physical world. Okay, nonetheless, they do a deal with the father. They're appearing to the father probably in physical form, and they're trading this information. And it is, it, it says, wise for themselves, they chose them to, to marry, of all whom they chose. 
So they chose certain females to do this. And they went to that dad and made a deal. Now, this, this is where you have to understand, you have to accept what the text is saying. Because a lot of people want to fight the text. Well, angels, you know, they, they can't procreate because they're spirit creatures. How do you know that? I'll talk about that a little bit about Matthew 22 in just a second. But here's the deal. Based on what I've just said, do we have witnesses? And what I mean by that is everything in the Bible must be established by at least two or three witnesses. Okay? Do we have witnesses? Yes, we do. We have two New Testament witnesses that the only way you can understand this text and under, only understand their text is by accepting what Genesis 6 is saying. So let me show you the first text. It's Peter, and specifically uh, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Note what Peter says. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned... Now, wait a second. That could be general, they sinned with Lucifer, and they fell with him. But no, he ties it to something in context. But cast them down to hell, or Tartarus... Tartarus in the Greek is the low, is the lowest place in hell in the earth where only fallen angels go and are permanently confined until the great white throne judgment. This is different than the abuso or the abyss where angel or fallen angels are sent temporarily, but then can come out after paying however many how much time they need to stay there. Remember the demons begged Jesus not to send them to the pit. That's temporary confinement. But Tartarus is permanent confinement. That's, that's totally different. And notice, let me ask you this. If this is a, a reference to the fall of, of, of Satan and the other angels, how come they were put in Tartarus? How come Satan's not in Tartarus then? It's very specific that what these angels did sent them to Tartarus and delivered them to the chains of darkness because permanent permanent uh, uh, confinement to re be reserved for judgment, which is the great white throne judgment, and did not spare, wait, here's the tie, here's the link, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So Second Peter is linking what these angels did, sent them to Tartarus at the time period of the flood, which is linking to Genesis 6. How about another witness? This is Jude. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode. What's the, what's the domain and the abode of fallen angels? The atmosphere around planet Earth, space. That's where their abode is, okay? Now, they do have access back and forth, but that's their place. Our abode is planet Earth. Their abode is space. But notice what he's saying. They crossed a boundary. They left their proper abode and domain. But notice he, he also mentions he has reserved an everlasting chain, same as Peter said, under darkness for the judgment of the great day, the great white throne. Notice the link in verse 7. He brings all of a sudden Sodom and Gomorrah. As, he's linking the word as, as what the Sodomites did, these angels did. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, 
bingo. He is saying what this, the sin of the angels that, that left their domain was, was linked to what Sodom and Gomorrah did, which means that they, they, it was a sexually moral sin and they went after strange flesh. Homosexuality is going after strange flesh because a guy and a guy and a girl and a girl doesn't work. It's strange flesh. It doesn't, it's not the way God created. When an angel or fallen angel goes after a human female, that is also in the category of strange flesh. They're not made for each other. It's different. It's wrong. And so it's linked to what Sodom and Gomorrah was happening or what was happening there and are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So they're going to be eventually thrown into the lake of fire. But Jude and, and, and Peter are our witnesses that Genesis 6 created this. Now, again, they would not have said this had this just been humans mating with other humans. They only said it because they knew from their, their understanding that something evil happened. And it was a strange flesh situation. Now, here's the question. Why did they do this? Why did these Benaha Elohims decide to mate with females? Why did they go on Mount Hermon and, and say, we're all going to do this, right? Yeah, we're all going to do this under the leadership of Satan. Why are we going to do this? We have a clue, and I think the clue will tell you the main reason why. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also, notice this, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who? Okay, identify who, who the spirits in prison are. Humans? No. Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering, the divine long sufferings were referenced to the 120 years before Noah's flood, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, leave that up there. The spirits he's talking about are not human spirits. He's talking about fallen angel spirits, Elohims. And the idea then, who were formerly disobedient, he's linking it to the days before Noah. Did you know, once Christ died, that his soul and spirit descended into Sheol, or the Greek word is Hades. Now, he told the thief on the cross, remember that? When the thief on the cross got saved, what did he say? Today you will be with me, where? Paradise, which is a technical term, not for heaven, but paradise part of Abraham's bosom in the center of the earth, because no one could go to heaven because the atonement had not been made. Now, later on, he takes people from uh, uh, Abraham's bosom or paradise to heaven. And so now a believer goes to heaven now because the atonement has been made. But prior to the atonement, everyone went to Abraham's bosom or slash paradise. Paradise is where the regenerate humans went. The abyss uh, is where fallen angels temporarily were confined. And then we call it hell uh, or, but the technical term is Abaddon or Apollyon is where unregenerate humans go, and then there's Tartarus, where permanently confined angels go. There's four locations there in the center of the earth. Jesus went 
to Tartarus. Now, he was in Abraham's bosom, today he would be, but he also made a trip to Tartarus. Why, per se, would he go and what he says, preach to the spirits in prison? The, the Greek word is proclaim victory to the spirits in Tartarus. Why would he do that? Peter has given you a clue for the reason behind Genesis 6. I want you to think. Jesus goes into Tartarus and tells the Benaha Elohim that did that, I have had victory. Your doom is sealed. It's over for you. What you were attempting to do has failed. Because the fact that I'm here shows you you failed. And the fact that I made the atonement shows you that you failed. Your doom is sealed. You have nothing left but the lake of fire. Why would he proclaim that to them? Why would he have to say that to them? It tells you the reason why. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan is then told in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush you. What does that mean? That this anointed one that God is going to send, in Hebrew it's the Messiah, the Mishiach. We call him in Greek, Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, must be, according to Genesis 3, fully human in order to be our kinsman redeemer. But that human being was foretold to Satan, a human being is going to destroy you. And it's this one that will end your career, Satan. So guess what Satan tried to do? He tried to change the genetic code of humans and corrupt the DNA so that all of the ancient world would have their DNA corrupted and hence prevent the Messiah from coming because he has to be fully human. So in order to destroy that prophecy, Satan decided, let's mess up the DNA to where these people are not even human. They may look human, but they have angelic parts in them. They have animal parts in them. And as you'll see with the Nephilim, they were made up of all kinds of weird mad scientist creations in the DNA that created monsters. The primary reason for the, for the flood is no doubt the wickedness of human beings, but these humans were corrupted genetically. They were messed up. They weren't fully human. But God is preserving a human line all the way through this, and it comes down to Noah and his family are, are genetically pure. And then, hence, they tried to disrupt this. It happened afterwards, too, by the way. Now, with that being said, that's a lot to, to, to drink from. We're drinking from a fire hydrant. It's a lot. I get it. I get it. But you have to be exposed to it. But here's the deal. What's the application on something like this? Because I could just close it up and say, I don't know. Let's just, you just need to know. No, 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 no. There's a, a application to this, my friends, and the Apostle Paul will give us our application. I'm going to derive my application from this. Now, we're going to do part two next week, and it gets even more complicated. 
Um, so anyway, it, you just got to know it. You, we, sometimes you got to reach for the high fruit, right? You just got to reach for the high fruit. Um, but the application then is what Paul says. Now, let me give you the context of what Paul is doing. He says, he's talking about church order in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he talks about the Lord's Supper. They were misbehaving there. They were doing things out of order in the service. And it just got crazy. It was lunatics and just running all wild and crazy. And he, Paul says, hey, hey, we're going to shut this whole thing down. We got to have order. And so he's establishing order. And as he's establishing order in the context, he segues into women and men and their proper roles. And he was taught, he'll talk about women being in submission to their husbands. And then he will throw on this idea of a woman wearing a headdress. Have you read that passage? And you look at it, it's like, well, a lot of your commentators will say, well, it's a cultural thing. We don't do that now. And, that, and I get that, but you have to bring in Genesis 6 to understand what Paul's doing because he makes a reference in this passage to something interesting. Now, we don't wear headdresses. Women, we don't require women. But in the ancient world, they wore headdresses, right, to cover their hair. Hair for a woman was a symbol of her glory, her beauty, and it was a sexual thing to see a woman's hair. That's how it was, okay? And so they, a lot of women back in the ancient world covered their hair because of this very issue. Well, what was happening in Corinth, the women were coming to church with their hair uncovered. Look what he says. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, the head covering, because of the angels. What? I would think he'd say, woman ought to have her head covered, and he does say this, uh, because of her submission to her husband of proper authority. But then he throws in this whole thing of because of the angels, the watchers. Why would Paul just throw that in and say, you're doing it for them? Well, you only can understand this verse if you understand Genesis 6. Remember I told you at the outset of the sermon that the angels are, and fallen angels are all males. And I told you that they were attracted to females. Yeah? Has that changed? Has fallen angels changed and they're, they're more reformed now? No. There is a spiritual issue, ladies, that I must warn you about. And I must warn your husbands about, and this is the application. It's not that you have to wear a headdress in our modern day and time. It's not that, but back then that was a symbol of being under authority. I'm under authority of my husband, I'm under authority of the, of the, the church, and ultimately Jesus. Authority is a big issue with the angelic realm, folks. Please pay attention to this. In your marriage or in proper relationships, ladies, you must always submit to whatever authority is above you. Men, the same thing goes for you as well. Whatever authority is above you, you have to submit to that authority because all authority is God-given. But in this particular issue, ladies, you must understand the warning that Paul is trying to get across to you. If a lady, a woman who is married to her husband, refuses to submit to her authority and decides to have an Eve syndrome, like we talked about, she becomes vulnerable to fallen angels. How so? Not that they're going to sexually molest you or rape you. I'm not talking about that. 
they will use that lack of authority that you're not submitting to as an occasion to start influencing you and start using you against people. That's how it works. Now, we are, I have studied this and I've seen many, many case studies of the, the demonic actually raping women. The whole, in the Middle Ages, they had the whole incubi and secubi doctrine. And it does happen. If you remember back in 1980s, there was a movie that came out about the entity. It was a true story based on a woman that kept getting raped by a ghost. And they filmed it. They documented everything. And it just kept happening to the woman. There are cases in the occult where the women are being raped by spiritual entities. Demons. Just exactly what Paul warned about. Obviously, those kinds of women are unbelievers. They're, there's no authority. And obviously, the, the fallen angels can have their way. So don't think it's not happening. Don't think that that's not occurring. Now, they're not producing anything, but the women are being raped by the angelic encounters. In fact, if you look and study satanic ritual abuse, that's exactly what's going on many times. I hate to tell you that, but that's what's going on. Okay, for the believer, he's talking about the church. A woman then will make herself vulnerable if she refuses to submit to her home head, which is the husband. And so here's the deal. A lot of, a lot of people will say, well, our home's not like that. Okay. But if it's not, or if it is, guess who will take advantage of that? They don't care what you think. They will see it. And if, if back in the first century, if a woman walked in with her head uncovered, it symbolized her rejection of authority. And at that point, green light, they went for her. Whether that was to influence her, demonize her, suppress her, oppress her, and to use her against her husband, and to use her against all authority that's in her life. Now, I, it's not to be misogynistic. Don't get me wrong. I'm just telling you what the Apostle Paul said. So, guys, to your point, you better be the head because you not taking the lead is making your wife vulnerable to the demonic realm. It is a real deal thing. I cannot be more emphatic about this. Your home has to be right. The guy has to be the spiritual leader and the woman has to come under submission to that. It's not a devaluing of her, but my, my friends, if that's not occurring, you're opening yourself wide up just like the Corinth church was. And um, so I'm going to take that cue from the Apostle Paul. Make sure you're under authority because of these, this very issue of the angels, the Banaha Elohim. We'll continue part two next week. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.